for AZPM. I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, explore the surprisingly deep history of girls' slumber parties and sleepovers and how they're still evolving in the 21st century. I'll talk with author and journalist Carlin Betcha. Find out about this Saturday's return of the Pima County Public Library's Mega Mania, a family-friendly celebration of comics, animation, cosplay, crafting, and games of all kinds. And preview a new collaboration between Arizona Illustrated and the University of Arizona Poetry Center. It highlights the work of six Tucson-based poets by adding visual imagery to the written word. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. There are many aspects of American culture that get taken for granted. Rites of passage and experiences that many of us shared growing up that may now just be distant points of nostalgia. The history of sleepovers and slumber parties, particularly for girls, is something that once occupied a unique place in adolescence, one that has transformed and evolved over hundreds of years. A recent article for the online feminist outlet Bust sheds light on the origins and current status of the American sleepover, and it was researched and written by Carlin Betcha. Betcha is an amazingly prolific artist and illustrator, and I spoke with her from her home in Massachusetts. During the 19th century, kids started to be separated because, you know, tuberculosis was rampant, and we really didn't understand how it was being spread, but we did understand that it was being spread between families. So Victorian doctors, of course, are recommending that kids be separated while they sleep. The Victorian era obviously had a big influence on society and culture, and it changed the way we thought about a lot of things. But I'd like to know how it is that all of these sleepovers began getting in the press. You document that over 2,000 sleepovers by 1920 had made it into newspapers. Around the 1920s, my theory, and it's shared by many, is about the time women got the right to vote. Girls were getting more um, freedom in their social life. I mean, one of the things that was, you know, new, we, we think of dating as really old, but the term dating didn't exist before 1920s. So young girls started having what's called petting parties, and they're, they're really, they were benign. Basically, all they did was cuddle, and sometimes they kissed, but parents were like, what's going on here? So in the 1920s, all these newspapers are reporting on slumber parties, the parents want to know what's going on in these parties. They're horrified. Like, young girls stay <laughs> up to all hours of the night. Is it witchcraft? We have to look back in time. During the 1920s, parents definitely felt like they were losing control of their teen. Like, there was, it was a definitely a, a wild child period for young girls. I mean, of course, they did not have the freedom that they do today. A young girl's reputation could be ruined if she did the wrong thing at one of these parties or, God forbid, you know, broke any societal rules. But at the same time, young girls were starting to stretch into, you know, having their own social activities, and they were basically seen as young adults at this time. 
And, you know, when you read the newspaper, um, the way they describe them, they're, they're very tame. They're very sterile. And, you know, all the young girls are in their matching pinoirs, and it's all, you know, very prim and proper. And you look at it, and they, these young girls, they all have this devious grin on their face. And you just know some hijinks are going on at these parties. And what mostly they were doing is they were probably playing a lot of occult games because the occult games were very popular during this time period. Slumber parties gave young women and girls a chance to share secrets and to share perspective on their role, Mm -hmm. whatever the era might have been. So let's reflect Mm -hmm. on that for just a moment about the secret sisterhood that they explored together in this kind of um, protected space. Psychologists call that the Robinson ages. It's about uh, the age of about 9 to 12. And that is the age where young girls are really trying to push the boundaries and discover their identities. Coincidentally, you know, it's also right before puberty hits. So all, you know, young girls, they're experiencing these bodily changes. And of course, they want to get together with their friends and they want to release some of these tensions and fears. And they want to test the boundaries of fear, too. I mean, one of the most popular activities that will never go out of style at sleepovers is to freak your friends out. You know, it could be ghost stories. It could be the Ouija board. It could be fortune, you know, some other like tarot cards. So for this article, I kept asking all my friends, do you know, what games did you play when you were a kid at sleepovers? And I asked my daughter this question, too. She's 15, so, you know, more, you know, Gen Z's current generation. And I was so surprised that we all played the similar games, and it's it's definitely generational. But Bloody Mary was a very popular one with my generation, and that's the one where you stare into a mirror and say, Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary, I believe in you. And then she supposedly appears before you in the mirror. Uh, what I found interesting is there's actually a scientific reason that ha- that happens. It's called the Toxler effect. And when they did research on having people stare at uh, one image for an extended period of time, you, you, you actually start to see distortions and you can start to see stuff because you, your, your eyes get tired and your brain starts to fill in the blanks of what you're not seeing anymore. I thought it was interesting that there was a scientific reason behind a lot of the games we played. Um, I'm sure everyone has played Ouija Board. I think that one kind of crosses generations, or at least I hope so. Uh, but that was a fun game we played, and that you know that has to do with the, everyone wants to know how is the planchette moving, and it's moved because of the ideomotor effect, and that what that basically is is a, it's our unconscious involuntary physical movement. In other words, when we think about an action, the hand actually will follow that action. And I thought that was fascinating how connected the mind and body are. But young girls were trying to predict what their futures would be by doing it. And by doing it together, it's less fearful. It's a chance for young girls to talk about their bodily changes and not on the internet because when you're, there's nothing like being around, you know, huddling close with your friends and expressing your fears in a way where they can comfort you in person. It's something that I fear kids are losing today. Well, let's talk about that. Where do we stand right now in 2023 after we've been through the worst part of the COVID-19 pandemic? We've been trained in some way in the last few years to separate and to not physically be together. For a lot of young people, social media is filling that gap. 
Yeah, you know, it really saddened me that I saw that there was a trend on Twitter uh, for with mothers asking to stop sleepovers. Because, um, I mean, if anything, we shouldn't be stopping our kids from getting together in supervised uh, gatherings. You know, I'm going to side with the Surgeon General on this one. And social media is probably more of a harm than what we're realizing. I'm one of those parents that I'm very careful with my daughter's social media use. But I do see some good in it, too. One of the games that she plays with her friends is after they have a sleepover, they list out all the funny quotes that were said during the night, and then they send it on a group chat to everybody. And I thought to myself, wow, that's a, that's a really powerful way to remember an evening. And you're using technology in a way that's empowering, and it's not hurting others. So there are good sides to social media, too. It does connect young kids together in ways that, you know, we didn't have. I mean, I don't need to tell lecture parents about this. I think every parent knows this, that the, the level of bullying on social media, it's getting to a level where I feel when kids are able to hide behind screens, that's when they're, they're playing with their fears in a negative way. And they're testing those boundaries in a way that is hurting others. Like kids are going to test boundaries. It's part of you know, the, that, that liminal process of into adulthood. But we have to make sure that they're not testing boundaries in a way that's going to hurt others. And unfortunately, screens make us not accountable for hurting others. And that, that, that's where I really worry. Carlin Betchez, a very busy author and illustrator. Her article on the secret history of slumber parties was recently published at bust.com. You can find a link and some photos on the Spotlight page at azpm.org. After taking a three-year break due to the pandemic, the Pima County Public Library is bringing Megamania back this Saturday from 1 to 5 p.m. It's a free, all-ages, family-friendly event, essentially like a community Comic-Con, with costumes, gaming of all kinds, workshops, special guests, and a million photo opportunities. All manner of public nerdery will be on display, and here now are two guests to tell us more about Megamania. My name is Kendra Davey, and I'm the Library Services Manager for Community Engagement and Outreach, and I oversee youth programming and adult programming now, and Megamania is definitely a part of that. I've worked for the library, Pima County Public Library, for 15 years. My name is Paige Carlson, and I am the teen tween librarian at the Flowing Wells Public Library. And I actually volunteered with Pima County Public Library as a high schooler um, with the summer reading program, and then attended some of the first Megamania because my friends were involved, and I'm a cosplayer, and I've been a cosplayer, so any time to put on a costume and walk around is a grand time. So Paige, I'd like to start with you and ask you as a teen and tween librarian, What do you think is important to the users of that age who come to the library? What are they looking for? I mean, we know the anime section gets larger and larger, but maybe you can explain to people why that is. Well, I think it's a really 
great way to meet people. I mean, it can be as simple as that. I mean, what you have with anime and manga is you have these like really cool, intricate stories that are both funny and then the next page is really dramatic and the next page is really funny again. It's comics and comics can be a little bit more approachable for people who might be reluctant readers or who just want something that can be really more visual. And it's a really cool medium that goes back like centuries. And so then the kids themselves, they get to like read these mangas and then it creates this community and then they're all talking about their favorite characters and what's going to happen next, what's going to happen in the next book. And it helps them get involved in like Japanese culture as well. They get to learn more about like why things are in a certain way in this in one story. Yeah, I think it's just a cool different way of storytelling that we don't really see in our Western storytelling. And as part of the public outreach program, Kendra, what do you hear from young people? What do they want from their local library? Similarly to what Paige said, I think one of the biggest aspects that the public library provides to young people is an opportunity to engage with each other through interests. Often it's not kids that you would meet. Uh, They're not in the same school. They're not in your neighborhood. But you're all coming because you are really interested in manga or you come for a movie night or you come for an art class. And that is one of the educational philosophies that we use for our tweens and teens is connected learning. That young person is at the center and we engage with them through conversations, hanging out, being there, listening, asking questions and really finding out what they're interested in and then designing our programs and our services around that interest. And then what we really try to do is help them make connections to other people. And Paige is excellent at this, helping smooth the way for those connections. Um, What we also do is then connect them to how their interests can help them be successful in whatever goal they have next. Something that I'm very aware of because of my interest growing up with comic books and science fiction and also spending a lot of time at my local library is that everybody thinks it's okay to make jokes about nerd culture, make jokes about geek culture, and I hate that word. But what are some adjectives that you would use, Paige, to describe that culture that I'm referring to? Sometimes I do refer to myself as a nerd because I I enjoy that, but fandom is a culture, especially nowadays, it's growing more and more, especially with the um, prominence of the internet. It's really that inclusivity. It's really that encouragement. It's really that um, just acceptance of where you are and what you like and how just being there and excited about something is enough to fuel everything. And I also want to stress that this has turned into an all ages event. Started off definitely for teens, but The community changed this event and the library responded to that community engagement with this event. So it started just for teens and we're really like only teens can come into the library. And then a lot of young adults and adults and young children said, hey, this sounds like fun. We want to do this too. So we opened it up and it really is all ages. And Kendra, what are some of the events that go on during Mega Mania that you would like for teens or families who are hearing this right now to know about? So for the events, we've got, um, similar to a Comic Con, um, artist and author workshops, a couple of those. We've got um, game playing, so tabletop, D&D, a video game tournament. We've we'll have VR games. Two escape rooms. We've got a Pokemon one and a Minecraft themed one. So you can test your knowledge there. We've also got the local sketch comedy group 
Keep Tucson Sketchy that will be performing at the very beginning. A cosplay, of course, we really encourage people to come dressed up. Um, and if you don't have a costume, you can make a costume, simple costume, in the cosplay workshop. We'll have all the materials there. And um, we'll have cosplay groups there, too. So, like... Um We've got some Disney princesses, we've got the Ghostbusters coming by, we've got the Justice League, and we've got pirates showing up. And Tucson Comic Con will be there as well, giving away swag. Who can tell me what the Dice Goblin make and take is? So that is a local artist, Natalia Lopez. Uh, She will be leading people through making goblin dice. I haven't seen them, so I'm excited to see what those will look like. Thanks to my guests, Kendra and Paige from the Pima County Public Library. Megamania is a free event on Saturday, July 15th from 1 to 5 p.m. at the Pima Community College downtown campus, 1255 North Stone Avenue. You can sign up for events like the escape rooms and craft workshops at the door, and it's recommended to do that first, as these opportunities are expected to fill up fast. The Sonoran Desert region has a long and strong reputation as a breeding ground for great writers of all literary stripes. That reputation is also the inspiration for a new collaboration between the University of Arizona Poetry Center and the PBS 6 television series Arizona Illustrated, produced by AZPM. The idea is to add visuals to six poems composed by six different local artists. You can preview the project now at azpm.org, but next we will hear Poem 5, as read by the author Bojan Lewis, the Assistant Professor of Creative Writing and American Indian Studies at the University of Arizona. Each year, cool monsoons show up hot with tension and startles the desert. Many of my friends, addicts, and recovering are soundless deserts. A lightning-struck tree, beware of its falling ash. The bright ochre sun. The Watamnu, an ancient sea receded, leaving the desert. Shemasana says, listen, presses a buck knife into my young hand. Cut a yucca spike, the bayonet end won't hurt like summer deserts. After years away, I came back to a ravine filled with dead pine needles, white skunk skeletons, under the crisp winter moon, the high dry desert. I love this odd man whose hometown burnt to the ground. Ash, capitalism, where suffering is, accelerants devour a pine cone desert. Why grow so high, son? Amasana asks. Do not forget your loved ones. 
their dried veins or scars, tended livestock or blind death, loquacious deserts. Joining me now is Andrew Brown, the content manager for the Arizona Illustrated television series on Channel 6. And first of all, Andrew, I'd like to know how this poetry series came to be. Honestly, this started when I ran into Tyler Meyer, the executive director of the Poetry Center, at lunch one day. And we were talking about how my program and the Poetry Center could continue to collaborate. I had done a story on them a few years ago and felt like there was always a lot of opportunity for us to collaborate and we were just waiting for the right thing to form and this just kind of evolved naturally from conversations that him and I had. What were some of the most important criteria that you and Tyler discussed when selecting the artists that you wanted to invite to participate in this? Tucson has the most incredible local literary scene, both poetry and nonfiction fiction. I feel like there's just a lot of really good and underappreciated work happening in Tucson right now from the MFA program at the University of Arizona to the Poetry Center to just just seems like it's blossoming in this community. We put together a list of poets that we might want to work with and it really is like a murderer's row of really great poets that would be impressive at any level like nationally, internationally and these are all just folks that are based here in Tucson and so we whittled it down to six and we're working with Susan Briante, Raquel Gutierrez, Bojan Lewis, William Pitt Root, T.C. Tolbert, and Javier Zamora. When I think about doing this, I think one of the most exciting parts and one of the most fun parts must have been sitting down with these poets to discuss how to visualize their work. We have six poets and six different producers working on uh, the visualization of these poems. I think one of the most challenging things is that Poetry is very abstract and it's supposed to conjure a feeling or like an emotional color in your mind. And when you start to put something in video, it becomes very concrete. So we're making something very abstract into something that's very tangible. We're going to play all six of these at the loft, and I'm really excited to see how people respond in that kind of context as well. But we're really doing something with poetry that is kind of unusual, and that's putting it to a visual form. Well, we invite everyone to go to the AZPM website right now at azpm.org and check out the work that's posted so far. But we began with the work of Bojan Lewis, and I wonder how you would explain the visuals to our audience on radio. This poem was visualized by a very talented producer, John DeSoto, and videographer Danny Sachs. And um, they just went out with Bojan into a beautiful portion of the desert and filmed him um, walking through it in this very epic and stoic kind of way. And um, I think it just really captures both the environment that he's writing about and him as a person. And we've had a lot of people respond to the posts on Instagram and social media that might not have normally checked it out, that they really enjoyed it. I just finished Bojan's book called Sinking Bell, and I really, really enjoyed it. And um, it was really cool to just see him as a person after reading his book. Well, you mentioned the impact that the Tucson literary scene is having around the country right now. And a great example is Javier Zamora, who has a memoir right now that's on the New York nonfiction bestseller list. So tell us something about the poem we're about to hear and um, maybe describe the visuals a bit. 
Javier Zamora's book, Salido, is really amazing, and I highly suggest anybody um, who has an opinion on the American immigration system um, to read it. It's a very beautiful and haunting um, account of him crossing the border illegally as a young kid. This poem um, has almost nothing to do with that, but it has retains his great literary sensibilities. Um, the poem is about him meeting, falling in love with, and moving in with his partner. Um, and it's just very touching. It shows a bunch of empty shots of their house. And then at this the end, I don't want to give away too much, but you finally see the two of them together and it has a very sweet emotional impact. That was done by David Fenster and Diana Cadena, and I thought that they did a really great job of, again, bringing something very abstract into concrete form. So you can see this video right now at azpm.org, but listen to the poem next. This is Javier Zamora. Aniversario, or we moved to Tucson during a pandemic for Joe Cipriano. First time in our porch, on the first morning we woke in our fully furnished apartment because we don't own anything but books, we saw a small gray bird with a yellow head grab the curled beans of the mesquite. We watched Voltaire, who we now know is a verdant build his nest every single day. Turns out, that was his display nest. Turns out, that was the first time either of us signed a lease with someone else. And now, we moved to a casita and co-bought our first bed, couch, table, chairs, and a hammock. Voltaire is elsewhere with his love, an equally gray, yellow, and red bird who helped V build the real nest. In our new place, there's another verdant couple who don't need to build a nest, but whom I watch search for food every morning when I wake, minutes, sometimes, hours before you to turn on the computer screen to relive the time when I searched for food, water, a different home. It took me years to find you, or you found me by sitting across the table as I ate a vegan meal at the Buddhist monastery the Dalai Lama calls his home when he's in the United States. I'm vegan now because I can't eat next to you and not share. I've learned from the burdens to sing you awake whenever I want you near my branch eating the same tiny leaf from the mesquites outside our bed. All six of the poetry film shorts will be shown on the big screen at the Loft Cinema on Tuesday, July 18th at 5 p.m. Admission is free, and we have a link for information on the Spotlight page at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. 
This show is a production of AZPM. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The assistant producer is Leah Britton. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.